Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. On May 28, 1903, a very strange man died in St. Louis. His name was Dr. Francis J. Tumblety, and he had a passionate hatred for women. He had surgical skills, and he happened to be in London, England in 1888, at the same time that the mysterious killer known as Jack the Ripper was murdering prostitutes in the city's East End. Is it possible that this St. Louis doctor, as some believe, was really Jack the Ripper. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you've not already subscribed to this podcast, you can do so right now for free so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're already a weirdo, please share this episode with friends, family, and co-workers so perhaps we can bring them into this weirdo family of ours as well. And be sure to set a reminder for tomorrow for our Listen and Chat Wednesdays. We all jump into the Weird Darkness chat room, me and all of you, my weirdo family, and together we listen to and discuss a recent episode of Weird Darkness along with anything and everything else you might want to talk about. You can join the chat on your computer, laptop, even your smartphone. It's every Wednesday, 9 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Get the details at WeirdDarkness.com, and I hope to see you tomorrow night for our very first Listen and Chat Wednesday. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… They found the first body stuffed inside the church library's closet. Then a second body turned up. It's the creepy case of Theo Durant, better known in San Francisco as the Demon of the Belfry. In 1989, a man anonymously claimed that he had worked at Area 51 where alien technology was being reverse-engineered for the Pentagon. It sounded like the crazed thoughts of a madman at the time, but now, 30 years later, it does not seem so absurd. One of our weirdo family members tells the true story of a young child told not to be sad when her grandfather passes away, before anyone knew that grandfather had died. Some very strange things have been taking place in Sedona, Arizona, including ghosts, UFOs, and even people supposedly seeing living dinosaurs. But first, is it possible that the reason Jack the Ripper was never caught was because he was only visiting London at the time and then returned to his home in St. Louis, Missouri? Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness.
In the year 1888, the city of London, England was terrorized by a killer who called himself Jack the Ripper. The madman prowled the streets of the Whitechapel district in East London and slaughtered a number of prostitutes, carving his way into the historical record as the first modern serial killer. As the years have passed, the Ripper has held the morbid curiosity of professional and amateur sleuths, armchair detectives and crime buffs alike. Having eluded capture in the 1880s, his identity has been debated ever since, and scores of suspects have emerged, with a number of Americans among them. Many St. Louisans have been surprised over the years to find that one of the suspects lived in St. Louis and died there 15 years after the murders in London stopped. Suspicion by police officials that Dr. Francis J. Tumblety may have been Jack the Ripper came about in 1913, years after the murder took place. Inspector John Littlechild, head of the special branch in England, surmised that Tumblety might have been the killer. As he told a journalist, his feelings toward women were remarkable and bitter in the extreme, a fact on record. Tumblety was arrested at the time of the murders in connection with unnatural offenses and charged at Marlborough Street, remanded on bail, jumped his bail, and got away to Bologna. He shortly left Bologna and was never heard of afterward. It is believed that he committed suicide, but at that time the Ripper murders came to an end. And while not all of Inspector Littlechild's facts were correct, he did make an interesting case toward the American doctor being the fiendish killer. Francis J. Tumulty was born in Canada in 1833 and moved with his family to Rochester, New York at a very young age. Although uneducated, he was a clever man and became wealthy and successful as a homeopath and a mixer of patent medicines. There's no record as to whether these snake oil cures worked or not, but it is certain that Tumblety had no medical degree. He did claim to possess Indian and Oriental secrets of healing, and he was described as charming and handsome so it's not surprising that he made quite a bit of money in this questionable field. When not charming customers, Tumblety was said to have been disliked by many for his self-aggrandizing and his constant boasting. He had a penchant for staying in fine hotels, wearing fine clothes, and making false claims about himself. Often these tall tales got him into trouble, and he left town on more than one occasion just a step ahead of the law. In the late 1850s and early 1860s, Tumblety was living in Washington, D.C., and from this period, the first stories of his deep-seated hatred for women began to surface. During a dinner party one night in 1861, Tumblety was asked by some guests why he did not invite any single women to the gathering. Tumblety replied that women were nothing more than cattle and that he would rather give a friend poison than see him with a woman. He then began to speak about the evils of women, especially prostitutes. A man who was in attendance that evening, an attorney named C. A. Dunham, later remarked that it was believed that Tumblety had been tricked into marriage by a woman who was later revealed to be a prostitute. This was thought to have sparked his hatred of women, but none of the guests had any idea just how far the feelings of animosity went until Tumblety offered to show them his collection he led his guests into a back study of the house, where he kept his anatomical museum. 
Here they were shown row after row of jars containing women's uteruses. In 1863, Tumblety came to St. Louis for the first time and took rooms at the Lindell Hotel. As he recounted in his letters, his flamboyant ways did not appeal to those in St. Louis, and he claimed to have been arrested in both the city and in Carondelet, an independent city at that time, for putting on airs and being caught in quasi-military dress. His biggest flaw in those troubled times in St. Louis was his apparent Southern sympathies. In 1865, he was arrested on the serious charge of what amounted to an early case of biological terrorism. Federal officials had him arrested after he was allegedly involved in a plot to infect blankets which were to be shipped to Union troops with yellow fever. The whole thing did turn out to be a case of mistaken identity, an alias of Tumblety's was remarkably close to a real doctor involved, but it's likely that he would not have been suspected if not for some actions on his part. Tumblety was taken to Washington and imprisoned until the confusion over the plot could be cleared up and he was later released. In the 1870s and 1880s, he made frequent trips to London, which is how the rumors of him being Jack the Ripper got started. Although there has been much debate over the years as to how many victims Jack the Ripper claimed and just when the murders began, it's generally believed that the first killing occurred August 31, 1888. The victim was a prostitute named Mary Ann Nichols. Her death was followed by those of Annie Chapman and Elizabeth Stride on September 8. On September 30th, the Ripper claimed Catherine Eddowes. Organs had been removed from the bodies of both Chapman and Eddowes, including the latter woman's uterus. Just prior to the start of the murders, Dr. Tumblety had come to London and had taken lodgings in Batty Street, the heart of Whitechapel, and within easy distance of the murder scenes. It is on record that he was watched closely by the police, especially after an incident involving a pathological museum. During the Annie Chapman inquest, the police began to suspect that the Ripper might be a doctor. One medical examiner believed that the killer had expert anatomical knowledge. He was basing his theory on a witness that claimed the killer was hunting for women's uteruses to sell to an unknown American. The bizarre bit of testimony came about because Tumblety did indeed visit a pathological museum in London and had inquired about any uteruses that might be for sale. He apparently wanted to add them to his collection. On November 7th, Tumblety was arrested, not for murder but rather for unnatural offenses, which was usually a reference to homosexuality. He was later released on bail, although when exactly that was has been a matter of debate for many years. According to some records, he was released on November 16th, but according to others, he was let go on November 8th. The entire theory of whether he was Jack the Ripper hinges on the date that he was released from jail, either November 16th or November 8th. The reason for this is that on November 9th, the Ripper claimed his last victim. Her name was Mary Kelly, and she was mutilated in ways that cannot be imagined in her own bed. She was butchered beyond recognition, and a number of her organs were removed, including her heart and uterus. If Tumblety was actually released on November 8th, then he could have easily killed Mary Kelly. 
One account of the days following the murder states that he was arrested on suspicion of her murder on November 12th, was released without being charged, and then vanished from Whitechapel. On November 24th, it's alleged that he took a steamer to France and then sailed from France to New York. Scotland Yard detectives were said to have pursued him to New York, and while they kept an eye on him, they had no evidence to arrest him. They eventually gave up and went home. Those who do not believe that Tumblety was the Ripper give a different account of the days after Mary Kelly was killed. According to these sources, Tumblety was not released on bail until November 16th. As Inspector Littlechild wrote, he was then believed to jump bail and escape to Bologna with the police pursuing him. From there, he booked passage to New York, where police staked out his lodgings. He escaped them, however, and vanished. He was not, as far as recorded, further pursued for his part in the killings. But that said, it would have been impossible for Tumblety to be the Ripper. If he were the killer, then someone would have had to copy and exceed his previous work on Mary Kelly while the doctor was still in jail. Most would agree that this seems highly unlikely. But our story is not quite over. Regardless of what is written about the last days of Tumblety in London, all will agree that after his escape, he did end up in St. Louis. He also traveled for a time, avoiding Washington but visiting Baltimore, New Orleans, and St. Louis. He continued to live in hotels and established no permanent residence in any of the cities. In April 1903, though, Tumblety checked himself into St. John's Hospital and Dispensary at 23rd and Locust Streets in St. Louis. The hospital provided care for indigents. According to accounts, Tumblety was suffering from a long and painful illness, although what it may have been has never been specifically identified. Some have suggested that it may have been a debilitating case of syphilis, the contraction of which might have been cause for his hatred of women, especially prostitutes. Whatever it was, though, Tumblety remained at St. John's until his death on May 28, 1903. However, he was certainly not an indigent when he died. Court records showed that Tumblety left an estate of more than $135,000, some of which St. John's managed to recover. The hospital asked for about $450 to cover the room expenses and medical tests for a man who was clearly not poor. The rest of the estate, except for costs to a St. Louis undertaker, went to Tumblety's niece, Mary Fitzsimmons of Rochester, New York. Aside from the hospital, there was one other claim to Tumblety's estate. The additional claim was quite strange, especially in light of Tumblety's clear prejudices on the subject. The challenge to a will that Tumblety had written on May 16th came from an attorney in Baltimore named Joseph Kemp. He claimed that Tumblety had written an earlier will in October 1901 that left $1,000 from his estate to the Baltimore home for fallen women. In other words, a halfway house for prostitutes. The claim was thrown out of court, but it does provide an interesting final note to the life of a man who has been suspected of being the most famous killer of prostitutes in history. Up next, a young child is told not to be sad when her grandfather passes away, before anyone knew he had died. 
and some very strange things have been taking place on Bradshaw Ranch in Sedona, Arizona. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. If you're a loyal listener of Weird Darkness, I'd like to invite you to become an official weirdo. For as little as five bucks per month, you'll get the daily commercial-free version of Weird Darkness, exclusive news about the podcast, special offers only available to official weirdos, and even a lapel pin telling the world you are officially weird. Learn about becoming an official weirdo at WeirdDarkness.com. One of the most popular destinations in the state of Arizona is the town of Sedona, which over the years has accrued a reputation as quite the mecca for New Agers and paranormal researchers from all over the country as well as droves of tourists every year. Arizona, and in particular this area, is rather well known for a high concentration of UFO sightings and for the mysterious energy vortices said to dot the landscape here where Earth energies crackle and which are believed to confer all manners of health benefits, as well as said to aid in meditation and self-reflection. It's largely because of these alleged magical vortices that a bustling business of spiritual healing tours and metaphysical medicine outfits have sprung up here. And one can already see that Sedona is already a rather strange and unique place in an already rather unique and strange state. However, Sedona is also the home to a very unusual patch of land where there have long been reported all manner of high strangeness, from UFOs to ghosts to dinosaurs and more. Go off the beaten path for a while, off down a remote, unpaved, rough dirt road just 12 miles outside Sedona in the Verde Valley, and you'll be met with the site of a rather large abandoned ranch now inaccessible and blocked off by intimidating gates plastered with signs from the U.S. Forest Service warning away trespassers. The desert scrub and wilderness area around that ranch is as remote and uninhabited as you can get, and the now uninhabited ranch itself has devolved into a feral place overgrown with weeds and partially devoured by the landscape. It was obviously once an expansive and successful ranch, so what is this place, and why is it just sitting out there, forgotten to be slowly reclaimed by the ravenous wilderness around it? For that, we have to go back to the beginning, back to 1945. It was in 1945 that a Hollywood stuntman and actor named Bob Bradshaw moved out to the Sedona area, where he opened a modest business in the form of a photography shop. With his Hollywood connections, Bradshaw also had a hand in many of the westerns that were en vogue at the time and which favored the deserts and canyons of the area for sets, with over 50 full-length features made in this vicinity over the years, and which helped to revitalize the area. With his newfound influx of cash and good standing among the locals, in 1960 Bradshaw purchased a 140-acre parcel of land out in the Verde Valley at a place that was then known as Bitter Creek and this ranch and its old adobe houses would also go on to become a popular place to shoot movies, such as the 1967 Elvis Presley film Stay Away Joe and others. In the 1990s, Bradshaw's son, John Bradshaw, 
turned the land into a more functional, actually working ranch, and it also became popular as a recreation spot for camping, horseback riding, and other outdoor activities. At the time, this was a secluded place of natural beauty, with a veneer of Hollywood laid over it, but things would begin to take a turn for the strange beginning in 1992, when a series of escalating, strange phenomena began to creep across the ranch. It supposedly began with John Bradshaw's wife, Linda, who claimed to begin seeing mysterious orbs of light in the sky over the ranch, as well as sudden bright flashes with no discernible cause and streaking mystery lights. This was perhaps to be expected because the region was already long known as a hotspot for UFO sightings, but things would escalate quickly and further branch out into the weird. As if UFOs and anomalous lights in the sky were not odd enough, Linda claimed that odd comets would move across the property, shooting beams of light, and that the place was crawling with barely glimpsed shadow people and other entities. He and her son would also claim to have had a rather far-out encounter with actual aliens on the property, which she would see outside of her window one evening, and described it thus. Strolling past the window were four short-statured aliens wearing tight-fitting one-piece uniforms of a light tan color. They were what are typically called the Zeta Reticuli, also known as the Greys, only these appeared to be a bit more ashen-colored, almost white. Once the beings were out of sight and the witnesses recomposed themselves, the three of them jumped into their car and sped to the house where I was sleeping. I remember so vividly how my son vigorously shook my arm to wake me up. I could still hear the trepidation in his voice as he said, Mom, wake up, they're here. I raised up and said, Who's here? He exclaimed, The aliens, Mom. The next day, she allegedly went out to investigate the area where the entities had been seen and found tiny footprints in the ground, which they took video footage of. On top of the aliens, there were also sightings made of large, hairy, Bigfoot-like creatures on the property. In particular, one Linda nicknamed Big Girl, which was seen frequently, and other less discernible creatures. Even stranger than these sightings were accounts of spotting what were described as actual dinosaurs at the ranch, with Linda herself claiming one time to have seen a five-foot-tall bipedal lizard with a long tail standing on a dirt path one evening. These apparent dinosaurs purportedly left large reptilian tracks that were sometimes found on the property as well. Linda recorded these and all manner of other strangeness at the ranch, such as livestock and other animals falling ill for no apparent reason, or the manes of her horses being torn off, and after several years of this, in 1995, compiled it all into a book called Merging Dimensions – The Opening Portals of Sedona, along with ufologist Tom Dongo. The book also features numerous photos that were captured at the ranch, with many of the strange phenomena not seen until the camera film was developed. UFOs, aliens, Bigfoot, shadow people, living dinosaurs – what in the world is going on here? Linda Bradshaw believes that all of these disparate phenomena are the results of some sort of interdimensional doorway that has, for whatever reason, opened up at the ranch, and through which spew all manner of entities. She would say of her theory, I believe these openings have always been on our plane, and they've perhaps been the portals to allow others in, 
But if one were to ask my opinion of my experiences regarding this magical place, I would say that not only are they being allowed in, but they are coming in in great numbers. I'd also love to say that only compassionate beings of light are scooting through these portals, but this does not always seem to be the case. I have come face to face with a few decidedly nasty beings. The ranch subsequently became a haven for paranormal researchers, and it was featured on numerous TV programs, with orb and UFO activity commonly caught on film at the location. Readings taken at the ranch also showed the anomaly that it had a much stronger magnetic field than the surrounding area, by some estimates around 500 times greater, although why this is or what connection it has to the purported phenomena, no one knows. In May 2003, the mystery was deepened and conspiracy theories were spawned when the U.S. government suddenly and without explanation purchased the ranch and quickly had it locked off from the rest of the world. Locals claimed that there were frequently military personnel seen around the area, and in addition to the signs keeping people out were also armed guards said to patrol the area and turn people away in no uncertain terms. Unverified reports exist of hikers being confronted and turned away by heavily armed guards with no visible identification or insignia, or even more ominously chased off the property by either guards or all-terrain vehicles that are all black with no noticeable markings. Dongo said of this in his book Mysterious Sedona, a machine gun, usually an M16 or in some cases semi-automatic pistols, is then leveled at the hikers. By the tone of the voice of the soldiers, the hikers left with no doubt that he will be shot on the spot if he does not turn around, retrace his steps, and rapidly leave the area. Those looking for hard evidence of these claims won't find it. There are plenty of stories of suspicious activity, missing persons and aliens and UFOs spotted in conjunction with soldiers, but no substantiated evidence exists to prove these theories. Military activity in the area could very well be routine training exercises, and those hikers asked to turn around may be done for their own safety. It seems odd for this to be the case with just a ranch out in the middle of nowhere, so why is this? Well, that depends on who you ask. For some, it is because the U.S. Forest Service is looking to preserve valuable Native American archaeological sites in the area. But of course, considering all of the strange phenomena reported from here and the rumors of portals and vortices, there are others who think that the government confiscated the land in order to cover it all up. It's hard to say just what is going on with all of this, but Bradshaw Ranch has continued to be a hotspot for the paranormal nevertheless with hikers and tours that skirt the property often coming back with myriad tales of the weird. A very strange experience supposedly happened during the filming of a 2013 episode of Discovery Channel's show Uncovering Aliens, with this episode focused on the ranch. According to the report, at some point a man named Stephen Jones wandered away from the crew and onto the actual property of the ranch. When he returned, half an hour later, he was apparently in a daze and he claimed that he had heard disembodied voices all around him and that he had missing time and making it all the more bizarre was that his watch had reportedly stopped working. This was not put in the final episode, but it probably should have been. So what happened to him out there? No one knows, and it just adds to the rest of the lore on this very strange location. What's going on 
at Bradshaw Ranch. Is this all just kooky conspiracy tales? Tall tales and fiction? If any of it is real, then is it as Linda Bradshaw says? And there is perhaps some sort of interdimensional phenomenon at work here. If so, why does it congregate to this one place? It's interesting to note the extremely wide range of different types of phenomena reported from here. Orbs, spook lights, UFOs, Bigfoot, aliens, dinosaurs, and others, all of them coexisting in this one patch of high strangeness, gravitating to this place for inscrutable reasons. Why should that be? Also worthy of note is that although the ranch has been there for years, before Bradshaw ever came along, why is it that the disturbances did not begin until 1992? What activated it, if any of it even exists at all? Why did the government buy up the land and then prohibit access? Whether this is all urban legend, conspiracies, interdimensional portals, or something even stranger, Bradshaw Ranch certainly inhabits its own little corner of the strange in a state already steeped in the bizarre. I have a story from my youth to tell you. It's not about me personally, it's about my cousin. We will call her Sam. To give you some backstory on this particular event, when I was in the eighth grade, that would make me around 14 or 15, we lost my maternal grandfather to a heart attack. He was traveling home from Arizona and was supposed to pick us up from school, as it was the start of our spring break. Well, he was a no-show, and we called around to my aunts and uncles to see if they had heard from him. No one had heard from him. My grandma was in Florida visiting her sister, and she had not heard from him either. Well, as the day went on, we only got more worried and started to call his friends. None of them had heard from him either. It wasn't about two in the morning when the state police showed up at my aunt's house. They were there to inform her that my grandfather had passed away in his hotel room in Effingham, Illinois. Here's where I pause this story to tell you that is the aunt who is the mother to the cousin Sam that this story is about. I have to tell you that my cousin's paternal grandfather had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and they gave him only months to live. Well, when the police showed up to her house, she asked if they had informed any of my other aunts or uncles, and they radioed out to see if the other units had made it to my other family members' houses, at which point they hadn't, so my aunt told them to call off, and her and my uncle would drive to my uncle's house and then go from there and inform the rest of the family. They got to my house at about four in the morning and informed my mom, who let my brother and I sleep the rest of the night, as she didn't want to wake us to tell us the terrible news as my brother and I were very close with my grandfather. While when we did wake and she told us the news, she said my aunt asked that we be there when she told my cousin Sam, who was in the second grade at the time. So we drove the hour or so to their house to tell her. It was a hard thing to tell someone so young. But when we told her, she didn't cry at first. She sat in the corner and just stared at us confused. Finally, she said, well, that's not right. And it was our turn to be confused. Asking her what she meant, we just stared in disbelief when she said to us that the little old lady in the basement told her that her grandpa was going to die and that she should not be sad because it was his time. With that, the lady walked away and vanished. 
I should add that the house they live in is a brand new house, just built the year they moved in, so no one had died in the house as far as we know, and it was not built on burial ground. Well, as that went, we all just kind of brushed it off and got on with the preparations for my grandfather. I don't remember a lot from that week, as I was very upset at losing one of my best friends. Well, we all got through that and were getting on with life when, about four months later, my aunt called to say that her father-in-law passed away the night before. We all knew it wouldn't be long, but it was still sad, and we felt bad for my uncle because he was very close with his father. At the funeral for him, my aunt told my mom and I that Sam had come to her on the night that he passed and said the lady in the basement came back to tell her that her grandpa was again going to die, and this time she knew it was going to be her grandpa Moon. Twenty minutes later, they got the call that in fact he did pass away. Needless to say, I still won't go into that basement. I'm 28 years old now. When Weird Darkness Returns, The Creepy Case of Theo Durant, better known in San Francisco as the Demon of the Belfry. Plus, in 1989, a man anonymously claimed that he had worked at Area 51 with alien technology, and now people are finally starting to believe him. These stories are up next. Hey, if you love Weird Darkness, you might also love the Weird Darkness store. The newest design is perfect for you weirdos because it reads in big, bold letters, Proud to be a Weirdo. You can get it on hoodies, mugs, tote bags, phone cases, pillows, and more. And if you get a Proud to be a Weirdo classic t-shirt, it also comes with a giant Weird Darkness logo on the back, so you're spreading the darkness whether you're coming or going. You can see all of the Weird Darkness merchandise and all the designs by clicking the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, but if you can't seem to get out of it, you're not alone. Call 1-800-273-8255. They'll show you a way out of your depression, even if you're trying to deal with it through drugs or alcohol. With the FMLA, you can take a leave of absence from your job and return to it once you've found help. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow, and right now you can get two premium MyPillows, normally $59.99 each, but now you can get both for just $69.98 combined. That's the lowest price ever offered in Weird Darkness, but you must use the promo code WEIRD to get this special deal. Visit MyPillow.com, click on the two-pack special, and be sure to use the promo code WEIRD. Thirty years ago, on May 15th, KLAS-TV's 5 p.m. newscast aired a live interview with an anonymous man who made some extraordinary claims. Bob Lazar, who was being called Dennis at the time to protect his identity, alleged that the U.S. military was secretly studying alien technology out in the Nevada desert, near a base that is now well-known all over the world – Area 51. In the 1989 interview that started a whole new conversation, 
The claims sounded like Hollywood science fiction. Months later, when his identity was revealed, Bob Lazar said he worked at a secret facility near Groom Lake where alien technology was being reverse-engineered, meaning taken apart to figure out how it worked and whether the Pentagon could duplicate it. The premise seems less absurd now. In a new documentary about Lazar, he describes in detail the spacecraft he worked on 30 years ago. The craft that I worked on, that's when it's going to travel a long distance, that's how it operates. It puts its belly to the target and then brings all the amplifiers to power. And you know, it shoots off in that direction. It doesn't fly as it would in a science fiction movie. It flies with the belly, the bottom, forward, Lazar said. If that description of a spacecraft tilting sounds familiar, take a look at the so-called Gimbal UFO. The Pentagon released a video in 2017. Naval pilots encountered a fleet of the unknown craft off the coast of Florida in 2015 and have since had dozens of similar encounters. The spike in UFO incidents prompted a recent policy change by the Navy, which announced it wants to encourage its pilots to report future incidents. Pentagon officials reluctantly admitted to the New York Times 17 months ago that the military had secretly studied UFO incidents, in part so it might figure out the technology. In the gimbal video, there's a mechanistic turn against the wind without deceleration, and so we have a craft without rotors, without heat signatures, without plums, without tail fins, and certainly no tail number, moving in a way that is counterintuitive to our aeronautics," said Jeremy Corbell, the director of the Bob Lazar Area 51 and Flying Saucers documentary. When Bob saw it, he said that it had to be a gravity-propelled craft, that it does mimic the propulsion system Bob Lazar described. Along with directing the Lazar documentary, Corbell also broke the story about another now-famous UFO incident, the 2004 Tic Tac encounter. The Navy pilot who engaged the Tic Tac, Black Aces Commander Dave Fravor, has said that he doesn't believe the astonishing craft was made on Earth and that the propulsion might be anti-gravity. When Lazar was shown the Tic Tac video for the first time, it immediately reminded him of the Sport Mode, which was his name for the craft stashed in the desert. No question in my mind, that's the way the craft operated, Lazar said. It's the exact same propulsion system. Former Pentagon intelligence officer Lou Elizondo was in charge of ATIP, the secret Pentagon study. He told the I-Team one goal of the project was to determine the physics of UFOs, how they can achieve the seemingly impossible. The military came to believe the craft relied on special metamaterials, stuff that can't be made with known technology. Lazar made similar claims decades ago and was ridiculed. Now the Pentagon is on the same page. The study of UFOs did not end in 1969 with Project Blue Book. That was a lie, and it was an admitted lie by our own Pentagon, Corbell said. We're living in a world where it is understood that there are craft technologically advanced from an unknown origin that are performing maneuvers that far exceed human technology. It's been going on a long time, and our government has been studying it. Although William Henry Theodore Durant was called Theo by his friends, the handsome and well-liked Sunday school superintendent 
soon earned a more sinister nickname, the Demon of the Belfry. Theodorant worked for the Emanuel Baptist Church in San Francisco. On April 13, 1895, members of the church were preparing for that Sunday's Easter service when someone opened a closet in the church library and discovered the mutilated body of a young woman. She had been strangled to death and stabbed, her wrists cut so deeply that her hands had practically been severed from her body. Cloth from her undergarments had been stuffed down her throat with a stick, and later examinations revealed that she had probably been raped. Initially, investigators expected the body to belong to a 20-year-old Blanche Lamont who had gone missing 10 days before and who had last been seen entering Emmanuel Baptist Church in the company of Theo Durant. However, the body proved to be that of 21-year-old Minnie Williams, also a member of the church's congregation and a former romantic partner of Durant's. The night before, she had been seen in a heated discussion with Durant. A passerby would later attest that Durant's manner was not becoming to a gentleman. After the discovery of Minnie Williams' body, a thorough search of the church was conducted, and the body of Blanche Lamont was found in the belfry. While Williams' body had been mutilated and mostly clothed, this one was completely naked and almost serene, posed with the hands folded across the chest. Like Minnie Williams, Blanche Lamont had been strangled and likely raped. Theo Durant had courted both of these girls in the past for a period even at the same time. He and Minnie had been seeing each other for some time when he made an overtly sexual advance that worried Minnie. He met Blanche in 1894 and broke it off with Minnie for the new girl. Theo proposed to Blanche only a few months later. She thought he was joking and later found out he had been engaged to another woman the whole time, cementing her decision to say no. Thanks to his history, Theo immediately became the prime suspect in both murders, and police picked him up in short order. Around the same time, Blanche Lamont's aunt, with whom she lived, received a package in the mail containing Blanche's rings. The package bore the name George King, the church's choir director, but when police showed the rings around local pawn shops, one of the pawnbrokers recognized them and said that a man matching Durant's description had been in trying to sell them a few days before. Throughout his trial and up to his death by hanging, Theo Durant maintained his innocence in connection to both murders. However, the many eyewitnesses who saw him with each girl shortly before their deaths and Durant's easy access to the areas where he left the bodies made it easy for a verdict to be reached. Indeed, Durant's case did not look good. According to S.F. Gate, the accused was compared to Jack the Ripper, the Marquis de Sade, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde throughout the trial. The jury found him guilty within five minutes of deliberations, though by some accounts they worried that the speed of their decision might appear to be too rapid, so they finished their cigars before returning to the courtroom and delivering the verdict. Throughout the trial, people flocked to the courtroom, many of whom came to catch a glimpse of the handsome killer. One woman was dubbed the Sweet Pea Girl by the press, as every day she brought Durant a bouquet of those same flowers. He is said to have sometimes worn one in his lapel. During the trial and its aftermath, 
a number of salacious stories surfaced relating to Durant's dark side, though whether they are true or not remains unknown. Some claimed that he frequented the brothels on Commercial Street, where, according to one account, he once brought a pigeon or a chicken and slit its throat during sex, letting the blood run over his and the sex workers' bodies. Such acts certainly sound like the work of a demon of the belfry. Whether they are true or simply lurid exaggerations in the face of real-life brutality may never be known. Please help spread the word about Weird Darkness in your social media or text your friends about it and invite them to become weirdos along with you. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Click on Tell Your Story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Also on the website you can find all of my social media, hear samples of all the audiobooks I've narrated, and you can also join the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group to hang out with me and other listeners of the podcast. You can email me from the contact page, and if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you'd leave a review to let others know what you think of the podcast. I got an Apple Podcast review from Helen in Selby, England, saying, Best podcast out there. I've been listening to Darren's podcast for about a year now, and I am completely hooked. It is full of mystery and intrigue. Quite often, stories have piqued my interest to such a point it has incentivized me to further explore some of the stories. I admire you supporting people with depression, as this is often an area which is overlooked, as it's often a case of unseen, therefore doesn't exist. Keep up the podcasting, Darren, and I'll keep listening. Thank you so much. Helen Delaney from Selby, England. And on YouTube, I got a nice comment from John Nedward. He said, I have depression and PTSD. Thank you for all you do. Thank you also for the great entertainment. It's great escapist fun. Takes your mind off stress and problems. God bless you, Mr. Marler. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Was Jack the Ripper from St. Louis was written by Troy Taylor. Demon of the Belfry was written by Oren Gray. Bob Lazar, The Pentagon and UFOs was written by George Knapp and Matt Adams. Strangeness at the Bradshaw Ranch was written by Brent Swanser. The Old Woman in the Basement was written by a weirdo family member, Ashley Delia, submitted directly to the website. Weird Darkness is a registered trademark of Marler House Productions. Copyright Marler House Productions 2019. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 46 verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And a final thought from George Bernard Shaw. Progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. The newest audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com is Murderous Minds, Volume 4, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines. Tales of murder and darkness have a way of both terrifying and enthralling us. 
the line between man and monster is never as definitive or sturdy as we'd like to think. When seemingly ordinary people cross the line between normal behavior and violent acts, it raises the question, what were they thinking? Can your own mind be the key to becoming a monster? What we think, or more importantly, what we believe, can push the boundaries of normal into darkness in unimaginable ways. Whether the beliefs come from misinterpreting organized religion, holding too tightly to old folklore, or letting your imagination run wild, the danger is evident for those unable to keep their minds in check. Murderous Minds Volume 4 follows six chilling stories of faith and imagination gone too far. It's a dangerous reality that has reappeared decade after decade with deadly results for those unfortunate enough to wander too close to the flame. The killers of this anthology have the charisma to convince others of impossible things and the insanity to hold those beliefs themselves. These belief systems come at a high price, especially for the victims of belief-motivated crimes. What old-world folklore would drive a man to murder his wife in front of her family? What happens when two teenage girls believe their parents are the only thing stopping them from ruling in another dimension? How did a middle-aged housewife convince an entire community that it was a psychic gift predicting the deaths of her neighbors rather than deliberate doses of arsenic? Does the fear of witchcraft still put lives in danger decades after it stopped being tried in court? These stories and others explore the ways that the human mind can be manipulated into carrying out unfathomable acts of violence and depravity under the guise of strong, indoctrinated beliefs. When evil can come from inside your own head, family, friends, neighbors, and even strangers are not safe. Get your copy today and see how these six tales of strange beliefs turned into horrific murders. Murderous Minds Volume 4 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines Written by Kelly Gaines and Ryan Becker Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar Hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com.